Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Matt, and welcome to Pod Wraiths, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. If this is your first time joining us, we're two friends watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine and sharing both our deep and irreverent thoughts on our favorite Star Trek series. This week, we're talking about Season 1, Episode 4, A Man Alone, teleplay by Michael Piller and directed by Paul Lynch. This episode aired on January 17th, 1993. This week on Deep Space Nine, an old enemy of Odo's is murdered behind locked doors, and all the evidence points to Odo as the killer. Oh no. <laughs> it's a very, very detective novel, very detective novel in space. How did you feel, Elise, about A Man Alone? What are some of your initial thoughts before we kind of dive into the A, B, and C plot of the episode? Um, I do like a little mystery episode. That's kind of fun. Um, detective stuff is interesting, um, regardless of it being a, a police officer situation. <laughs> Um, this episode just felt all about prejudices and biases, you know, Bajorans against Odo, Cisco against Nog, Rob against Jake, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so mm-hmm. I think overall it felt almost like an after school special to me. <laughs> That's funny. Like, um, That's you know. funny. <laughs> um, and I don't even mean that necessarily like as a bad thing. I feel like a lot of shows do something like that, at least in their first seasons, you know? Yeah, before I started it, I was thinking how I know we're only on episode four, but I've been really harsh on Odo the last few episodes. So I was a little anxious to get into it because I didn't know if I was going to come off as being um, like super, super critical. And while I do want to critique, I don't want that to be the entirety of what I'm saying about every episode. So, yeah. So I, I, um, yeah, that was really about it for my initial thoughts you all right that's it we'll see you next week on the pod <laughs> race please remember to know um yeah i i definitely have some mixed feelings about the episode i think in terms of the two like regular non-pilot episodes we've seen um i think i enjoyed past prologue a little bit more i don't i don't Same. know no i have they're... i did too and it's just like i think a lot of that has to do with odo and the a plot and like i do did find the a plot intriguing i do love a good mystery i'm, I'm a sucker for both noir and and neo-noir yeah. and like not to to go too into the weeds on kind of the history of noir and detective stories a lot of them and the reason like in, in noir they are kind of like private detectives is because a lot of the systemic problems and 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 challenges and you know lack of things that that the organized you know the the police force writ large um are able to do to like to solve the crime so that's why you kind of have noirs being kind of the private detectives because it and a lot of them are commenting and even going back is like the birth of noir kind of in the the mid half early to mid half of the 20th century about the systemic inequalities and the ways in which policing doesn't work um so like i'm definitely interested in that those are tropes that i like and again i, I like a good detective story but my conflicted feelings about odo are continuing yeah um i yeah. should i so should we'll, we'll... say sorry just quick on the detective stories the listeners may know or not know that murder she wrote is one of my absolute favorite shows of all time and I feel like that, while I wouldn't really call that a noir so much, it, um, you know, Jessica Fletcher often um, 
can do things that police officers maybe can't or won't. And I feel like that is something that I'm also drawn to. Yeah, no, for sure. That there's, it's multi-layered, and there's there's a lot there's a lot going on there too. Because like it can definitely those tropes can swing in the way of like vigilantism, which I mean I don't necessarily support either. And that's again lots for us to to jump into this episode because there definitely is some some mob vigilantism that, yeah, that goes sure. on in, later in this episode. But I think kind of just to to set the stage a bit before we kind of dive in, um, I think one of the interesting things about Star Trek Deep Space Nine season one particularly is the ways in which they they dive into to different things and they try different things that maybe had been new to Star Trek before and become indicative of what the show will grow into. They, you know, trying things that end up working and becoming what we think of the show now. And in some other ways they try things, you know, I'm thinking of upcoming episode storyteller, um, which don't really (laughs) jive with like what the show ultimately becomes. But in this episode, particularly Michael Piller, who was the co-creator credited teleplay writer for this episode and, and showrunner at this point, point um has a quote again from and i think this from the official star trek deep space nine magazine um and he said he liked the idea of looking at deep space nine kind of how how hill street blues was kind of looking at there to like again being a being a cop show um and that the station offered different opportunities than star trek the next generation being being on the ship and this is quoting directly from Pillar. I wanted to show that within the building structure of Deep Space Nine, there are lots of different stories that had crossing paths. I wanted to do an A, B, C story and see if we could get them all going into one inter- interacting and intersect at one get them all going at one time, interacting and intersecting. That was the goal. So again, I think that definitely is what this episode and even as we were planning it and doing the notes you know most star trek has that kind of dedicated a plot and b plot and we definitely had that but we had a c plot as well and the c plot for my money or my gold press latinum excuse me um (laughs) was some more of that kind of intentional character work that we didn't always get in in star trek whether it's on the original series or even the next generation kind of intentionally that same way kind of filtered in and being yes a little bit of like paprika on the sandwich but giving that moment to kind of breathe in the midst of the a and a and the b plots so yeah no it's just definitely interesting and i think again that's something that deep space nine definitely becomes comes known for did we want to start with the c plot go up to b and then go to the a does that that work for you that works for me that's good because that's how we organize the notes. <laughs> good thing we agree so with we'll... ourselves. <laughs> I, you know, I like when that happens, right? Yeah. I like when that. I happens. mean, we could have changed our minds. That would have been okay too, but it's good that we didn't this time. Exactly makes makes it easier. We don't have to <laughs> scroll around the notes too too much. Great. All right, so let's start with the C plot, which. You know, we have titled here in the notes as, as Julian and Jadzia, but Cisco definitely plays a role in that as well. And kind of, I don't know, is it is this a love triangle that they're trying to set up? What What do I you think, think of the, the C plot? I least? think I I don't think the show is trying to set up a love triangle because I really don't think that Cisco is in a triangle with, with them. But I yeah. feel like maybe within the world of Deep Space Nine, the characters are thinking it's a love triangle if that makes sense right right yep um i think julian doesn't really understand the history 
with Jadzia and um, Benjamin and is clearly jealous that they have something. He doesn't know that it's a friendship, but he, that they have something that he doesn't know about. And, like an um, intimacy, like yeah, it's romantic, but like, right. yeah, like but it's more platonic, yeah, yeah. right, right. And I um I fi- I find um I know this this plot really does help us learn a little bit more about Julian, but I I find it interesting that when he confronts Jadzia about um having dinner, I believe it was with um Benjamin. She tells him that um, trolls are not looking for romance the same way as humans. They don't want it to distract them. And it kind of reminded me what we were saying during the pilot, where they really didn't know how to handle Jadzia at first. Like, they wanted to make her this, like, beautiful Grace um, Kelly-type character, as you, you had said previous. But they also sometimes wanted her to be, like, chased almost and I feel like that spoiler alert goes against everything we know about her from watching the entire series I mean I'm not gonna go plot by plot on that but just doesn't track with the Jadzia that I know and love right um so it's kind of weird and she basically tells him to back off but very so much nicer than I would have and um (laughs) and he's like I don't know. I kind of felt like he was being a little pesty about it. He was like, well, you said you tried to rise above it, implying that she doesn't. And I'm like, is he still trying to bang her? Like, what is happening here? Or is he just being, like, his doctor self and just from a scientific standpoint wanting to know more about her culture? I know he's, you know, we've discussed he's a curious person in general, but his smirk at the end of that scene makes me think it's the former and that he's still trying to, like, date her. I don't know. It's it's a weird, it's a weird interaction. Like, I would hope that if someone says I'm not interested in that, that the other person would just drop it. Totally fair. Totally fair. And I, I think this is a case of something not really holding up on kind of like subsequent watches or even, you know, the the intent being different from how it reads on screen based on the, the perspective of, you know, the writers versus how it reads when it's someone who's who's not, you know, um, a straight you know, white, white male writing, writing the episode, right, too. Right. Like, like, I, th- I think the like authority, the the, I I feel like the intent is that Julian is young, enthusiastic, and he's he's charming to a fault that flirts with like smug smugness and overconfidence, and I think you're exactly right. I think his smirk indicates that it's it's a bit of both column A and column B. It's like he is curious, he just wants to wants to learn, but that is a a pathway that he sees to kind of further you know relationship or intimacy with Jadzia and I and I think it kind of reminds me a little bit of and I know Lost comes out 10 years later but the character of Charlie on Lost and he's someone who I think was a, a fan favorite and an audience favorite kind of at the time and was kind of you know quirky and charming and like whatever yeah but watching watching it now he like that character suffers a lot um, in, in his, his modern reading. And I think at where I'm tying in with, sorry, I just punched my mic. Um, <laughs> need to stop gesticulating too much when I, when I <laughs> podcast. Um, and I, where I, why I bring up Charlie's, I find the commonalities because it has to do a lot with how they view consent, right? right? And what, mm-hmm. 
what their love interest or their female, like the female characters or other folks around them are telling them in terms of what their boundaries are. And it's the way in which men within our patriarchal structures view boundaries and ultimately in in more extreme cases consent as something to kind of be be pushed against right yeah and it's like yeah boundaries are boundaries and they they need to be respected and that's that's a crucial thing yeah and i i hate this i hate this terminology but i'm going to use it in this case it feels like julian's trying to not be friend zoned you know what i mean like he's like right trying to like leave a little bit open at least on his side to like have something in the future and it just dude she said she's not interested like just get over it i don't know i hate the whole term friend zoned because it implies that the person that you're interested in like the onus is on them to like handle it when the they've already told you they're not interested and you should just respect that so i i i have a complicated I have complicated feelings about that phrase, but I feel like it applies here. hundred percent. And, and, and it's, I think that whole idea that term and that concept, it, it comes from a place of like straight male entitlement, right? right. And it all kind of ties into the ways in which our patriarchal society is, is structured and the way, you know, we, we socialize men largely into kind of like expecting and like something that um i've talked about a bit with with my co-hosts on my Mad Men podcast because this this stuff comes up a lot in Mad Men. if you haven't seen Mad Men <laughs> listeners it does um but the ways in which quote unquote nice guys weaponize that and like men weaponize straight men weaponize um emotional vulnerability to further their own ends and i do think that there is is a layer of that kind of going on with julian and i think i don't i think in Mad Men sometimes that's intentional maybe right. not always but i but whereas here is i think it's it's not i don't think it's necessarily intentional and i think it's just the perpetuation of patriarchy right basically i mean i right? think yeah they're two different shows and I, I would agree with you like obviously Mad Men's looking at the past but deep space nine is supposed to be the future so you'd hope mm-hmm. it would be um yeah we'd be past that so later, um, Julian goes to lunch with Benjamin and basically just flat out asks him if he's interested in Jadzia. And I just found that kind of weird, but also very high school, like, oh, do you know, you know, trying to find out information from like your perceived competition or whatever. Right. Just, I don't know. <laughs> it just felt really sneaky. And, and I was like, ugh. But, um, you know, it happens. I'm sure I've done it also. Yeah. And, and I think, like, the added layer is that whole, like, the episode, like you said, in universe is trying to, like, people are worried about this potential love triangle and, like, Quark's commenting on it. Right. And Julian's worried about it. But, like, Cisco and Dax are friends. And that's, you know, that's the extent of their 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 intimacy and their history and and everything else. And so, like, on one hand, it's, like, Julian has a crush and is he asking this th- the best friend of the crush you know things about the crushes to to learn and whatever and it's like like you say it's a fairly common thing but like it just has this whole other levels and again with like what we talked about where Julian doesn't seem to be 
respecting or isn't respecting i should say boundaries and what jedzia said in terms of not being interested in any kind of like romantic relationship um it's definitely more than cisco playing and not to go full millennial here than cisco playing um harry to a hermione and ron situation um (laughs) but yeah there there are definitely layers there and i think the intent of the episode and how it reads are there's a little bit of incongruency there and before we go on, because I didn't make a Harry Potter reference, I just want to say fuck turfs. Fuck turfs. Thank you. Agreed. So we kind of have, I had this later in the notes, but I feel like now that we've said all of that, maybe we can discuss how Jadzia is talked about within the episode. Sure, yeah. I think it kind of fits in here. Totally does. Totally I'm does. I'm just trying to find it in the notes. It's under the A-plot stuff. Right. I just... Okay, here we are. Um, so, I guess Odo also thinks that Cisco is interested in um, Jadzia. And um, he doesn't understand that men and women could be just friends. And um, Clark tries to, you know, set him straight, like say, oh, they have a history, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I felt a little uncomfortable with Quark's phrasing. He was, you know, he said about Jadzia when she was a he. And I know this is the 90s and the trill are complicated. But with the way that trans people are discussed and treated, it felt kind of weird. I'm, I'm sure there's someone out there smarter that can explain it better than me but one thing I found interesting was that Cisco and Jadzia were having their conversation about how Curzon was a different person and that she's she's preparing him to understand that their friendship may not last because of the change and that he should feel comfortable with his discomfort and I I really that really resonated with me because I felt like fucking up on how you talk about something or how you feel about something and discussing why that is and discussing how you can maybe fix it going forward seems to me more important than just pretending that you're okay with stuff that you're not. And obviously no one has a right to be okay or not okay with someone's identity. That is so that's none of their business, but I still think it's interesting and important to discuss things that might be uncomfortable and that way you can kind of work through them instead of just having it be something that you never discuss with your friends. So the cool I think one of the cool things about Star Trek and the things that like I most like about Star Trek is the ways in which us as as watchers, consumers, fans of Star Trek can find aspects of ourselves in Star Trek. That was a lot of Star Trek, so I'll find <laughs> aspects of ourselves and in the various in the various forms of media, whether it's the movies or you know, seven hundred plus, however many there are now. I've lost count episodes, and you know, across all the different series and everything else. And ultimately, Star Trek is a show about exploration and discovery, whether that be you know the, the ship going somewhere or in the case of Deep Space Nine, as we've talked about before, like that going into and exploring identity and self and character and it's 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 a show about people right i think one of the realities of star trek is even though it's it's broadcasting and showing us this optimistic 
version of of the future um it is unfortunately rooted in the inequalities and common cultural understandings of it's it's time in which it was created right whether you're watching the original series or or this and even like we can and this is kind of i think from my perspective the whole intent of this this podcast and this project and and respectfully many other star trek podcasts um is the ways in which we can look to the art and see parts of ourselves and use it as a mechanism to further our own journeys of discoveries like to look towards our own you know our own futures and our own undiscovered countries and what that that looks like for us through imprecise and or unintentional metaphor and i think that that's really really what excites me about kind of star trek and ultimately like doing this this project with you specifically elise you are one of the people that I enjoy talking about Star Trek with the most, which is probably why we're doing the podcast. <laughs> That's good to hear. I just wanted to clarify. I don't ever remember if I was clear, but it, it's more just Quark's phrasing that felt weird since in 2021, I would only refer to a trans person's identified gender. I would not reference what sex they were assigned at birth or their dead name. So like saying when she was a he, like that's not some a concept I would even think about. Um, right. But um, recent, I recently read, actually looking up for this episode, um, Alyssa Harris had a post on from 2017 on the Women at Warp website titled, When I Transitioned, I Looked to Daxed. Um, I'm not going to summarize it because the writing should speak for itself. But I recommend checking out checking it out. Um, Alyssa describes how Jadzia Dax helped her when she was transitioning. And um, we're going to put a link in the show notes. But also, you should check out the Women at Warp podcast. It's one of my favorites. No, the Women at Warp is it's a great podcast. Yeah. It's no, for sure. But no, definitely, definitely read Alyssa, Alyssa's blog post because it's 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 great it's yeah it's really good. just know that there are some spoilers spoilers for later seasons um specifically season seven so just if you don't care about spoilers go finish that article and if you have seen all of deuce space nine definitely i would definitely recommend it so i think that was it for um like julian and jadzia the next plot that was um, well, the secondary plot was really Miles and Keiko and Keiko wanting to open a school on Deep Space Nine. Yeah, because the, the, them dastardly kids are up to no good. <laughs> right. Keiko wants to feel useful. Um, she's she's um, she's a botanist, and this drove me crazy. I know Miles is just trying to help her, but he's like, why don't you do some gardening in the promenade? And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with gardening, obviously, but like... I don't know, just that does not utilize her full potential. And she seemed extremely frustrated that that was the suggestion he made. And I was like, girl, I see you. You're a botanist. Why don't you just have a hobby garden? (laughs) You'll you'll feel better. It's like something to do. Um, Uh, Oh, Miles. (laughs) Yeah, I, Miles and Keiko, like... (laughs) So Jake and Nog finally um, become friends and meet 
and um, <laughs> they're pulling pranks on people. Say, finally, I'm... it's episode four. <laughs> I know. <sorry. laughs> I actually, so full disclosure, I had written finally in the notes, and then I was like, I took it out because I'm like, it's season four, and then I read, you know, said it anyway. So fair enough. Anyway. Sorry to drop. Go ahead. Finally, the two kids, after you know, <laughs> however many sorry. weeks, have have become friends. I felt so bad for those people that they played the prank on with it looked like, I guess, whatever. I forget what those little dot things that they were bugs. playing. Yeah, were like Color crawling bugs. all over them. And I was like, oh my God, that's so awful. But I guess they um, didn't last that long. So <laughs> Keiko sees them getting in trouble and decides that, you know, I need to rally these kids around to do something useful. So she decides that she wants to open a school. Cisco likes the idea. Which is, I guess, he has to probably uh, final say on whether that happens or not. Um, but um, he, I guess the big concern is going to be coming up with a uh, program that everyone likes since everyone comes from different cultures and backgrounds. So Kago cannot imagine any parent not being thrilled about a school being opened. And that made me feel like that was such a Western idea. I can totally see people not wanting their kids to be taught things that go against their religion or their faith like that seems pretty normal to me yeah i so something that we talked about during our coverage of the pilot was the original idea and concept of deep space nine as being this air quotes frontier town or like being this like western town and like you know as drawing on the idea of like manifest destiny and and settler colonialism and an expansion into the west and things like that so like it seems like they're they're really set on this idea so they want the you know little house little house on the prairie one room schoolhouse which is what what it ultimately ends up being and i think you've you've nailed you've hit the nail on the the head at least maybe of it being such a a kind of western ideal specifically because that's that's what's what's going on here and i and i think it's too potentially another example of the subtle colonialism of the of the federation as well and and again when you know this episode establishes rom as you know having a name and being nog's father which the the pilot didn't do yet the idea of like well what could a federation school and she's like well i'm gonna create a curriculum that's you know more inclusive and you know different traditions and like i think that that's that's a nice intent um and i guess it's like a a you know it's it's a nice idea but i'm I'm just really curious in practice what that would look like and i just have so many questions <laughs> about keiko just deciding that she wants to you know be a teacher <laughs> right. and going to design the curriculum and like you know i have what's the I, bajoran school system like it's a right. bajoran station so like should should there be education professionals from bajor there and like should there be like different options for like public schooling and i just yeah. I, the episode doesn't want me to think about this too much. <laughs> it's hard not to, though. Like, I, I get really, like, how are all of these kids that are different ages and intelligence levels getting the same lesson at the same time? Like, that, I know that they don't have the resources to have, like, different, you know, grades and, like, age, you know, different curriculum for different ages. And it just seems... I think that is an issue that I have with all 
like one schoolhouse for everyone storylines is just school is not one size fits all totally and like and again i think that goes back to that idea of western expansion being like one size fits all and then implementing kind of your you know your subtle imperialism as like being like the one size fits all kind of solution there right and it's just like i want to know what training keiko has as a teacher like in terms of like what's her pedagogical approach how is she designing lessons she's just writing the curriculum does the federation not have a curriculum does the bajoran school system have a curriculum like she's just totally like going rogue and i just i have so i mean full disclosure i have an ed degree i'm not i'm not a teacher but i did go to i do have an education degree so i just have maybe that's why i'm hung up on it but like i have so many questions i mean i watched so many questions i watched my sister go to grad school to be a teacher and she was a teacher for seven years and like Keiko is a botanist and that's really awesome and that is something that she probably studied for a very long time but that's not she didn't study teaching and it really reminded me of um when you're when you're younger and you can't figure out what you want to study in college and they're like oh well I guess I'll be a teacher or I, I guess you should be a teacher like it was some backup job when that is not how you should go into a field like that I just feel like there should be more intent and you need training to deal with teaching students and I think you said this but I just it just seems like a very gendered storyline for for Keiko yeah we were talking a bit about it kind of off pod before we started um just a little bit of like I guess context for the listeners. It's something that Elise and I talked about recently. We did a we did a kind of a test episode before we started recording this podcast on the Star Trek Next Generation episode Birthright Part One, which is an episode in which um, Star Trek Next Generation kind of crosses over again with with Deep Space Nine, and we were talking about on that episode how which you'll probably never hear because it was a test episode, but talking about dr crusher and deanna troy as as characters on next generation and how the roles for the the female crew members on that show tend to be in like traditionally like coded feminine caring and and nurturing roles right being kind of the doctor the therapist and a lot of their scene time supporting some some kind of cathartic role to the the male characters on the show so i think so far based on what we've seen in deep space nine you know especially with like kira and even you know jedzy as like the the science officer and things like that i don't think we're seeing deep space nine kind of falling into that main trap in terms of our our main cast yeah i would agree with that again but again i i we do have you know it's like they brought O'Brien over from from the Enterprise, from Next Gen. O'Brien is married, so they bring over, you know, Keiko O'Brien and, and Molly, the daughter, but they don't really know what to do with Keiko. So it's like, oh, we're just going to make her the teacher. Which, yeah. again, I think falls into those kind of coded feminine roles. Like, you know what I mean? So. Yep. One thing I thought of also is that I'm pretty convinced that Miles has a school teacher fantasy hidden away somewhere. <laughs> like when he like gave her that replicated bell, which 
in theory was sweet, but he was like, I can't wait to see you ring your school bell. And I'm like, it just felt like the beginning of like a sexual fantasy. So. I mean, I didn't read it that way, but (laughs) most reads are valid. So I mean, it doesn't take a lot for me. to read into we're, we're, we're sneaking into the uh, thirst <laughs> section a little bit early but i dig it <laughs> yeah it definitely doesn't take much for me to um read some sexuality into a scene that may not have intended to be that way <laughs> sorry i dig it it's just how nothing I am. to apologize for <laughs> never apologize for being yourself i found it interesting that keiko's um argument to rom to get him to let nog come to school was that it would give nog an advantage over other ferengis that are trying to get into business because he'll know more about different cultures and he can uh, know about their their economies and how they negotiate and i just thought that was kind of funny um it just seemed like a smart way to get more students and I just imagine her going around to all the different um, parents trying to find something in their culture that's going to make them think that school is a good idea and it it is smart it was a smart way to go about getting more students I still have so many questions <laughs> Valid. it's like a majority run station so like do they like I mean, I guess, yeah. Anyways, I just... Not to get ahead of ourselves, but I remember there being an episode about that. All right. So that's our C and our B plot. Should we we move to our hard-boiled detective story A plot? All right. What's happening with our our Odo in this week's episode, Elise? This is not related to the plot, but I love when Odo says to Quark at the beginning of the episode, you're almost making an honest living. And it like in my head, I was singing honest living honest living like from christmas bells from rent um (laughs) which like you know that's just how my brain works it's impossible for me to not associate some songs with phrases like you cannot say the word lettuce in my household without someone singing let us be lovers like it just it it doesn't it's just something that my family always does. Like, we will take, like, a line someone says and just start singing the song that has that line in it. It's just, we do that all the time. No, I, uh, it's, yeah. No, my, my brain works similarly, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Odo sees someone from his past and tells him he doesn't want him on the station. And obviously, at this point, we don't know the history between these two people. But Odo, assuming that he has complete authority over asking this person to leave, doesn't really track with me with the Federation being on Deep Space Nine or Cisco's face when he's breaking up their argument. Like, it's clear that Benjamin does not think that Odo has full authority to just throw someone off of the the station. Yeah, Odo, like, definitely views himself as, I don't know, like, the king of the promenade <laughs> you know <laughs> like he owns it or whatever promenade. yeah odo then explains to cisco that this guy ibudan used to run a black market run black market goods from deep space nine to the surface which i assume the surface is bajor but they weren't very clear yeah um, it would have been bajor because remember right. the station used to orbit bajor oh yes 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 i forgot the station moved 
Um, see, I already forgot. Um, during the occupation. And at first I was like, oh, that sounds helpful. You know, the Bajorans needed supplies. But then, you know, Odo was like making it pretty clear that he wouldn't help poor people and only sold medical supplies to those that could afford it. And that he also killed a Cardassian officer who was trying to bribe him. He was, um, you know, I'll take money from you and I won't tell anyone what you're doing, etc., etc. Yeah, I was I was glad that, I mean, as, as kind of like ham-fisted as it, it, it kind of is in some ways, I'm glad that they took the time to make the distinction that Ibudan was a... A kind of a war profiteer, yeah. Basically, and that you know he wasn't like smuggling them off for altruistic or purposes. He wasn't, wasn't being Robin of, Hood. Like... Yeah, exactly. He wasn't part of the Bajoran underground or or the resistance or any of the various kind of you know resistance sects like that. Sects, sects, sex, resistance groups. <laughs> it's it's one of those things where I think my I, I can see the word and I read it and I hear it a certain way, but then I think when I say it. Based on how it, my accent and everything else, it sounds like sex. Which... Sex or sects. I think I sex. say it differently, but I'm I pronounce things different. Anyway, now that well, we're again, done listeners, with this... if this is your first time joining us and you haven't figured it out yet, your boy is Canadian. Um, but yeah, I was glad that they made that uh, that distinction, and you know, it's just like, yeah, are they paying lip service to like why he's bad, and we're not supposed to like be on his side and be on Odo's side? Yeah, but I appreciated it. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times shows, and I don't even mean like a specific show, don't get into, you know, a character doesn't like someone and you're just supposed to trust that it's like a valid reason. And I did also appreciate that they kind of got into it and explained um, why the person was bad. So we can kind of decide for ourselves. And I agree yeah. that that person was not, not so great. Not that I think Odo's reaction was no completely valid, but you know, there's nuance there. So yeah. one thing I also liked is you had mentioned last episode that this episode was filmed before the last episode, but they aired out of order. So yep. I think that some of my questions from last episode where Kira says to Odo, I know you're no fan of the Federation being here, and we didn't have any evidence of that. I feel like this plot really does talk to that and explain a little bit more. Um, So I feel like my my questions were answered on why Odo is somewhat uncomfortable with the Federation being there um, by the end of the episode. Like, I felt like satisfied that I understood their relationship a little bit better. So we're up to the part with the murder. I'm twisting my fake mustache right now in like a murdery kind of way. <laughs> um. So so Ubudan, I can never pronounce it. Is it Ibudan? Is Ibudan? Getting, I think Ibu, it's Ibudan. Ibudan. Ibudan, yeah. Ibudan is in the hollow suite getting a very sexy massage and someone comes in and stabs and kills him. And more on that massage later. So then some rando guy, rando Bajoran guy, comes out and says that he spoke with Ibudan like right before he died. Or no, right after his earlier altercation with Odo and that he was fearing for his life. It just was very um, 
convenient that this um that this person had uh had spoken to him the whole time that there seems to be clues that Ibudan is not traveling alone and um they're trying they're basically just trying to figure out what happened yeah so the the rando dude i i had to look it up because i didn't i didn't remember his name either it's zara but for lack of a a better word he doesn't i don't i I mean he has a name great but he's basically (laughs) reads to me like the the leader of the ds9 chamber of commerce right Um, i do recall them saying something about him relating to trade the word trade so i think yeah he's like a shopper he's like a businessman that like lives on on space nine or something like that he seems Um, like he he would be like a union buster i don't like him yeah yeah the the chamber of commerce exactly our class (laughs) enemies um i did find i did find it interesting and kind of you know you talked about our discussions of odo like last episode and and previously is i do think that zara brings up an interesting point about why is Odo still the security chief when he he worked for the Cardassians and like literally it's been like one, two or three weeks or maybe a month or whatever because right. in the pilot Dukat's like this was my office two weeks ago yeah um which is like I think it's a fair question and it's I one do, that, I do that too. we've had yeah doesn't make just, sense to me the Odo and occupation stuff is it's kind of messy and the more I like think about why Odo is still there it reminds me a lot of <laughs> the uh the Iraq war and the like the whole concept of debathification that the the U.S. and the administration was was talking about a lot at the time debathification being taking folks who were you know worked for the you know the the former Bath Saddam regime and were still you know working in in roles because you know theoretically you still wanted uh the working you know a working government which i mean the u.s was just bringing in contractors to run it all and give it all to their friends if you haven't listened <laughs> to the podcast blowback I, I highly recommend it um but the idea of debothification is removing the influence and basically deprogramming folks who are members of the the both party or worked for the the former the former regime to you know basically be re-educated to a a pro-american and pro um democracy sort of like perspectives so like with with that in mind it's like is odo still there because he wasn't that bad and they still needed like you know the the provisional government need needs folks in different roles and you know we're, we're kind of in some ways a, a post a post kind of revolution society where again we're you know, Ibodan's been been released from prison because the Cardassians have left and, you know, kind of things like that. And kind of a little bit reminding me of like when political dissidents like Lenin got to go back to, to Russia after the February Revolution that ousted the Tsar. And then, you know, a lot of that then led to the success of the Bolsheviks in the October Revolution later that year. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of political turmoil and things like that going on in, in Bajor. And so maybe that's why Odo's still around. He's he's part of the de-Cardassianification of, you know, folks who weren't that bad um, as, as individuals. But I just, yeah, I struggle with the conversation about like where Quark comes to bat against the Chamber of Commerce about Odo's status as like a collaborator, which is something that will will continue to kind of come up, you know, in 
in stories that reference the occupation as we go through the seven seasons of deep space nine but like odo worked for the cardassians like i just i don't i don't have enough clarity yet to believe yeah quark that odo isn't a collaborator on some level yeah he was enforcing their rules i mean it just doesn't fully make sense to me either and the reason why this all comes up is because the chamber of commerce dude and the other bajorans on the station are Basically, all of the evidence that's come out about this murder so far kind of points to Odo as being guilty Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. the person who killed him, the door was locked and Odo can shapeshift and get through the cracks of the door. So they assume, oh, it must have been him, especially if they had beef. And, you know, Cork, as you said, comes to his defense, which made me have romance eyes a little bit (laughs) you know and just it really doesn't it doesn't make sense to me i mean you can think that odo is not a murderer but i also think that it's hard to agree with him not having been a collaborator with the cardassians and at least to like certain extents yeah i mean i don't know he could have like slipped away somehow he has skills it's hard to it's hard to say what you would do or not do in certain situations but um so at this point everyone is like odo seems guilty and cisco is realizing he doesn't have a choice but he must temporarily relieve odo from duty and i i I agree with this point because i think whether or not Odo is telling the truth that he didn't do this, it looking like a conflict is of interest is sometimes just as bad as it being one. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's just more ethical to yeah. and, separate these things. Yep. Yeah. And, like, that's cops shouldn't investigate other cops, right? Because... Yeah, they, especially it's... not themselves. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and I like, don't, and I mean, from Odo's standpoint, I don't even mean that he should stop looking into it himself, but he definitely should not be doing it in an official capacity. So the investigation gets pushed to Kira and Dex. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of, um, after this happens, Odo asks Gork for a job. And I just, 10 out of 10, would watch. A buddy comedy with those two running a bar gambling organization. Like, imagine Odo spying on people for Quark and late at night telling Quark what he learned while they're cuddled to be- together in bed. Like, <laughs> oops, did I say that out loud? Like, it just would be, that would be such a great show. I would watch that. I'd rather see, I at this point, I'd rather see that Odo than the Odo that we're getting. Anyway. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. No, and, and I think, too, I feel like the Odo and Quark relationship already, here we are, episode three. It's pretty well it's pretty well understood and pretty well thought out. And I did kind of enjoy, you know, their scenes and their dynamic and things like that. And that's already definitely what I think of in terms of the Odo Quark relationship. Like it's already there and yeah, it'll develop over the the seven seasons and and everything else. But that whole like frenemies thing, like I'm into it. Yeah, me too. And I also feel like rewatching it, I didn't realize how early that started. Like when I finished Jeep Space Nine the first time, I remember having certain feelings about their relationship, friendship, whatever you want to call it. And I I just really didn't remember that it started immediately when the show starts. 
Like, there's almost, like, a mutual respect there, even though they're kind of on opposite sides a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Enemies to lovers. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's my favorite. <laughs> All right. So Odo is threatened outside his office. There's a mob. There's His office has been vandalized. Yes. They're, they've created a new type of racial slur to use against him. <laughs> shifter. That they've, shifter. They've, that they've, like spiraled all over you know in the office and yeah as you have here in the the notes at least they're basically a lynch mob yeah they i mean the one guy the brand the dude is like making jokes about how you can't put a noose around a shapeshifter's neck like it's so i was like oh that's taking it a bit far that being said, I felt like this was very true to how people react to things they don't like. Like, instead of just calling out the behavior, they'll they'll add slurs to it. Like, it's the same, like, if you don't like something a woman does, you know, adding bitch or slut or whatever to your criticisms that has nothing to do with what they did or didn't do wrong. Like, it just feels like humans do that all the time. It's really gross. I'm still sorting through my feelings about how I feel about a literal attempted lynching on Star Trek. Yeah, that's valid. And especially, and like especially knowing as we've talked about that they had the post Civil War American Civil War kind of Western expansion like in mind, and like are leaning in the first season to like a lot of like tropes of like Western storytelling and like Western history. It's just like. I mean, thankfully, like, it doesn't happen, but it's just, like, it makes me feel icky. Yeah, I feel also there's so many racial connotations with lynching. It just... Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird go-to in, in this scene. And, like, even, like, Cisco asks them when they, they break up the the mob, um... He asks them whether the mob wants justice or they're looking to express their angers and their fears. And, like, again, that's, like, definitely a candidate for, I think, like, the most Star Trek moment of the episode. Um, But, again, like, it, it just makes me think of, like, what is justice? Who defines it? It's the powerful, those in power, the, the ruling classes who define what, justice is as they you know they write the laws and and everything else and like to so many people um the concept of justice is revenge it is an expression of their their angers and their fears and it's just i i have feelings that I don't, are not yeah i just have feelings i don't i don't, I don't disagree Aww. your feelings are great I don't, I don't disagree with anything that you're saying, but it, it almost reminded me of modern day, like, online culture and so, social media outrage. Like, there's always people screaming about things online, and I do this too. Like, I'm not excusing myself from it, but oftentimes the conversation doesn't revolve around what will make something right. It's just, I'm angry. And I feel like this scene is very similar in that way. But also, you know, what is right feeds into the what is actually justice and who defines it, as you have said. 
there's a could probably do like a whole a whole podcast on this whole concept in star trek and media and whatever but uh yeah lots of lots of thoughts lots of feelings none of them very coherent right now <laughs> so elise elise is is odo guilty did he murder ibudan it turns out that Julian finds that the second humanoid that was staying in Ubudan's room was not actually was a clone. So the person that was murdered was actually Ibudan's clone, and Ubudan killed the clone to frame Odo. Um, I'm completely creeped out by the fact that Julian made another clone to figure this out. Like, granted, he did not know that that's what he was making when he took whatever science material or whatever yeah Yeah. (laughs) when he did his science um he was he didn't know but he was like oh this will be a a human now and it just felt like so weird and so sketch from like an ethical standpoint yeah cloning is cloning's weird i don't know enough about it obviously like i'm feel like there's some good you know stem cell usages usages might not be a word but um cloning a whole human just feels very um i mean it's sci it's very science fiction so it's to be expected but it just was like so it was just the fact that he didn't even realize that that's what he was doing and then he was like all right i guess i made a clone no big deal it just was it was weird the ethics of cloning in in Star Trek, based on my recollections, and if I'm if I'm missing something here, listeners, please tweet at us. Um, but it's something that's never really explored with much depth. We know that cloning is is a thing in Star Trek. We have it in this episode. We've I'm think of it where it comes up in a couple uh, Next Generation episodes. Um, but until Star Trek Nemesis, it hasn't really been kind of a, a focus or like. It has been a major plot point. It's felt to me, based on my recollection, to be like it was treated in this episode where it's it's a thing. And, like, I know there's... I can't remember the name of it now, but there's a TNG episode where there's some cells stolen from members of the crew on, a, on an away mission. And the planet folks on the planet of the week are ending up trying to grow clones of the Enterprise members of the Enterprise crew to... Because I think they're a clone-based society and they're looking for um, genetic diversity or something like that. And Riker and the other members of the away team end up just phasering their clones as as they grow. So the, the ethics of cloning aren't really explored as a concept that's like kind of dug into like some of the other kind of ethic and political concerns in in Star Trek. And it's... I don't know. It's 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 almost. I I wonder why that is. Is it so fraught and so complicated that they just don't want to touch it? So it'll be like treated like it was in this episode, where murdering your own clone is still is still murder. But okay. But then what happened? Like I don't know. It just it's fraught, and I they they don't really they don't really explain it or dive into it, and like that's what almost makes it feel weirder for me that it's like cloning's a thing, but they don't really like go into it yeah i feel like, like bioethically they're very flippant about it and that is what it feels weird to me as well like it's the fact that it's not a big deal yeah it's uh it's weird <laughs> <laughs> coincidentally weird. i watched nemesis yesterday with my friend katie and um hi katie and um yeah that's all i'm gonna say about nemesis yep and everyone <laughs> just 
went on with their business. Odo was innocent. No one apologized to him. No one cared. Ibodan went back to jail. Yeah, I, I that felt true to me also. People don't like to apologize or admit when they're wrong. Um, and not that I agree with their methods, but the mob still is angry that he's working in security after he was working under the Cardassians. That hasn't been settled. So they're probably still angry and they're not going to apologize for shouting shifter, shifter at him. Do you think uh, the Chamber of Commerce guy was like in on the frame job or do you think that Ibudan just... Uh used him as part of the the frame job do you think he was in on it i thought he was in on it the whole time just how earlier when he was like i spoke to ibudan right after he was feared for his life like it just felt too it felt too planned to me i don't know what do you think yeah yeah i think that's i think it could be like either way but that's kind of my read as well and why he was like agitating about it too you know what i mean Right. I also think I'm becoming more cynical as I get older. So if I like think that there's something wrong going on, like I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, that guy's bad. (laughs) Oh, fair enough. So that is a man alone. Should we move to the Altair water thirst quenching section? Yes, I think that's a good idea. So I want to preface this by saying that I didn't find Ibujan or his clone sexy or unsexy for that matter. But I was really into that sexy hollow sweet massage situation. Like, we've talked about this from, like, there was that one joke in Lower Decks with um, the worst, the worst, um, the worst uh, job on, like, a starship is cleaning out the filter of the hollow suite, which obviously has um, bodily fluid implications. But um, hollow suite is masturbation. I'm totally into it. Sorry, Mom. I... Yeah, I don't think we can really, I don't really think I can follow up anything with that. <laughs> I can follow that up with anything. Um, I mean, you can also apologize right. to my mom, I guess. All right. No, I, like, it, it's fraught, but, like, as we talked about before, but, like, Julian having this puppy dog look because he's so, like, you know, crushing on Jadzia, which, like, again, it's I I agree with everything we said earlier and how it is, you know, low key, like, you know, fraught. But uh, he's just so excited and leaning in, has these big puppy dog lies because, because you know, he he has a crush that I did find it kind of cute. I know I shouldn't <laughs> have, and I know it's fraught, but I did find it kind of cute. So no. sorry, 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 Elise's mom. I did find it kind of cute. <laughs> All right, so then our final regular segment of the episode is most Star Trek thing of the episode. Elise, what's your candidate for most Star Trek thing? Um, I I really couldn't think of anything for this. I had two. Um, the first one I kind of, I mean, I've referenced both of them. I've referenced both of them over the course of the episode, but Cisco's kind of Federation righteousness on what justice was um, felt very Star Trek to me. Because I'm going to I'm gonna co-sign no... that one. That's mine, too. Yeah, it, it has no interest in, in digging in deeper. There just is that kind of moral righteousness uh, in that statement. So that, that felt very kind of Star Trek to me. And then my second one we just talked about was kind of having cloning as an afterthought and not caring to deal with the bioethical <laughs> concepts of it. Because uh... it's like, then does that make the TNG crew murderers? Or does 
does cloning life not when does when does life begin for a clone and just it's all oh, it's God. all fraught and they're just they just hand wave it away so that feels very star trek to me i think when does life begin as a clone will haunt me for the rest of my days <laughs> uh, yeah well i think i think we did it we did so at least in the meantime where can folks find more of you on the internet yes you can find me on twitter and letterboxd at elise underscore tendy e-l-y-s-e underscore t-e-n-d-i and you can find the show on instagram and twitter at podrates p-o-d-w-r-a-i-t-h-s Great, and you can find me on Twitter as well at MattyHugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. You can also catch me and a couple of other friends of the pod talking about Mad Men on our Mad Men podcast, Still Great Bob. As always, thank you to DJ Empirical for our very far-out theme. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Computer and program. Bye. Bye.